Well, unfortunately, the sermon on Sunday, the recording didn't work. So I'm recording this now in my, my office. So this lacks a certain something, but I'm sorry. Uh, before we look at our text this morning, I need to warn the Christian singles present that this sermon may not be what you're expecting or perhaps hoping to hear. You need to know up front what this passage from God's Word is not about. It's not about the pros and cons of dating in contrast to Christian courtship or arranged marriages. It's not about the hardships and temptations of being a Christian single and how to remain content and encouraged during this indefinite season God's called you to. It's not about the danger of marriage becoming an idol in your life, nor is it about how God can use singleness as a means of nurturing discipline in your life, nor is it about reconciling one's good desire to be married with one's ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Those are all important issues. They're issues of immense practical concern. But the New Testament nowhere explicitly addresses those issues in relation to singleness itself. Themes such as God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Christian maturity, Christian contentment, our eternal perspective on life, the will of God for our lives, Christian discipline, the role of prayer, trust in God, being faithful stewards of God's resources and grace gifts, patience. Christian single, you first must understand something of those general biblical teachings as understood in their original biblical context, and then afterwards apply that truth to your singleness, as well as every other area of your Christian life. Does that make sense? Do you see the distinction I'm making there? I've preached many sermons on texts related to all those biblical themes, some of them quite recently. And knowing who makes up our membership, I intentionally tailor some of my sermon applications to the singles in our midst. But in our passage today, we encounter something unique. This is one of those few texts in the New Testament that confronts Christian singleness head on. And... I wouldn't be surprised if the Apostle Paul is teaching truth in this passage, which may not even be on your radar as a Christian single. Uh, To be honest, when I began my pastoral ministry 13 years ago, I'd say Paul's emphasis in this passage was off my radar in the counsel I gave Christian singles. I, I don't think I ever said anything contradictory to this text, but my emphasis was off. Our sermon title today really says it all. It is good for some Christians to remain unmarried. So there you have it. So hang on to your hats. Our text this morning is a celebration of living an unmarried life, a life deliberately, a lifetime deliberately spent celibate and single. No spouse, no children. This text is about the goodness of remaining unmarried. It's God-glorifying, church-edifying benefits, and the kingdom responsibilities and privileges placed upon the Christians who, being a a faithful steward of the God-given gift of celibacy, choose this lifestyle for the sake of the kingdom. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's my prayer that through the Spirit of God working through the faithful preaching of His Word that every Christian who is a single here today would prayerfully consider the possibility of not pursuing marriage, of remaining unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of God. Is that something you've ever considered? 
It's something God wants you to consider, Christian. But this is a message which has all but disappeared in the church. It's so foreign to our ears. It sounds positively scandalous. Pastor John, are you actually going to preach such a crazy thing? Yes, I am. And we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches about the gift of celibacy and of singleness itself. And this is our first point in the bulletin. He begins with a bang. Chapter 7, verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. That is, unmarried and with the gift of celibacy. And I'll explain what that God-given gift is in a moment. Verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. And then verse 9, which doesn't sound at all flattering for us married couples. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. Wow. When's the last time you heard a Christian give relationship advice like that? Just compare Paul's outlook on marriage and singleness to the mindset of the evangelical church at large. What do a lot of prayer meetings in a lot of our churches sound like? Lord, we pray for all the sick and the poor and the dying and the lepers and all the single people at church too. Oh Lord, be their comfort and portion. And there's a constant pressure exerted in the church toward single Christians, isn't there? Get married, get married. Married, find a wife, find a husband. But have we ever once asked a brother or sister if they've prayerfully considered the possibility of remaining a celibate for the sake of the kingdom? If we're single, have we ever asked that question of ourselves? I believe the church is overcompensated. I think with issues such as marriage and the family and sexuality and gender coming under attack the way they have in our culture that the goodness of the biblical model of celibate Christian singleness has been pushed to the sidelines, and marriage and family has become the highest good, the summum bonum, when it's not. I think we've emphasized one good truth at the expense of another, so hopefully this sermon will bring some balance. And I think where the church first needs to bring in some balance is in our understanding of the spiritual gift of celibacy. Celibacy is is an old-fashioned sort of word, isn't it? Sadly, it's an old-fashioned sort of concept, but it means to lead a life of sexual abstinence. When one is celibate, one is abstaining from sexual intercourse. So every Christian single here today in obedience to the command of God revealed in Scripture, is living a celibate life. There is sexual union within the marriage relationship of one man, one woman, and there is celibacy. Those are the options. There is no third alternative. But what the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 7 is that there is a God-given gift of celibacy distinct from a Christian single's obedient lifestyle of sexual abstinence. I'm going to repeat that. Uh, There is a God-given gift of celibacy distinct from a Christian single's obedient lifestyle of sexual abstinence. But what does that God-given gift look like? And how do we know if we have this God-given gift? Basically, ask yourself if sexual desire is a chronic distraction and temptation in your life, Christian. That's probably the easiest way to determine this. If you have this gift, then you're not someone who burns with sexual passion and 
That burning is located somewhere on a spectrum the Bible nowhere quantifies. That's for you to judge. Every person is different, but it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you have zero sexual desire, zero desire for marriage, zero desire for marital companionship, and zero desire for children. Rather, the need for sex, the desire, is not a chronic distraction and temptation in your life. You know, you just know it would be possible to live without marriage, without sexual intercourse, and not to burn with unfulfilled desire. That's how it was with the Apostle Paul. He says in chapter 7, verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, that is, unmarried and possessing the gift of celibacy. But in Paul's mind, both the single and the married states are equally valid and blessed by God. 7b, but each of you has your own gift, charisma, from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now look at your bulletin for a minute, where it reads defining terms, and I apologize for the technicality of this, but we want to get this right. There's too much at stake. Defining terms, grace gift, charisma in the Greek, is not a technical one for Paul that refers only to a select set of gifts that transcend the normal, such as healing and tongues. Because we're prone to think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in those sorts of categories, aren't we? But the word charisma also embraces gifts such as encouragement and generous giving, helps, administration, teaching, and the showing of mercy. It's also repeatedly used in the Bible for the gift of salvation itself. And, as we see here in verse 7, the gift of celibacy and the gift of marriage. So, while Paul's personal preference for you, single Christian, may be for a lifetime of celibate singleness, he recognizes that each Christian has their own grace gift from God. Paul has the gift of celibacy. God gives other Christians the gift of marriage, and that's fine. One has this gift, another has that. But, if you have the God-given gift of celibacy, Paul has something to tell you this morning that will change your life. That gift was given to you by God for a purpose. And you need to be prayerfully thinking through how your life on this planet can best be used to bring God glory in a celibate, non-married context. We're not to squander our God-given gifts, loved ones. We're to steward them. We're to use them for the edification of the church and the advance of the kingdom. And so at the end of this sermon, once we have the big picture understanding of everything Paul's teaching in this passage, I'm going to make an earnest appeal uh, to the singles here today who believe they may have this grace gift. And I'm going to challenge you, along with Paul, along with Jesus, to live a life of Christian worship where marriage and children are deliberately let go for the priorities of the kingdom of God. Verse 8, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. And the counterpart to this verse is 39 to 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. That is, the widow is free to marry anyone who is a Christian. A Christian must not marry an unbeliever. Verse 40. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Which means Paul's not simply judging on his own in this matter. 
he also has the help of the Spirit in making such a judgment, in holding such an opinion. The widow, the widow is happier if she stays as she is. So when we go back to verse 8, we know Paul's not saying it's wrong for the widowed person to marry, but only that in his view, it's better to remain as they are. It's good for them to stay unmarried. Well, how so? Why is it preferable in Paul's judgment for the unmarried person to stay unmarried? And that's the concern of our second point, verses 25 to 40. It will come to that. But in short, Paul wants Christian singles to live with the end in view in undistracted devotion to the Lord. But we'll come to that in a minute. Verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, that is, if sexual desire is a chronic distraction and temptation, and then yes, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And you might be surprised, New City, how often and in what context your pastors quote this verse in the life of our church. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. Christian, what role does this apostolic counsel have in your dating life? It's timeline. What role does it play in your engagement plans and the timeline for your wedding day once you are engaged? Here's some pastoral counsel. And, and these are things I've said before from the pulpit and in person. If you are not ready, or if your boyfriend or girlfriend is not ready or willing, more or less at the present time in your current life situation, to be married due to a 16-hour-a-day work schedule or a life stage complication, hesitancies, commitment fears, emotional immaturity, or if one of you or both is following the desires of the parents in achieving certain goals before marriage— then my pastoral counsel to you is don't date. Don't ask people out on dates, don't accept dates, and don't allow yourself to become emotionally involved with someone. Not yet, not at this time, in this season. What's the point? If you know the possibility of marriage and sex is years away, then you're just asking to fall into sexual sin. You know, are you made of stone as your partner? It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And if you don't burn with passion, and if you and your significant other can hold off five years without a second thought about sexual temptation, maybe you both ought to be seriously thinking about celibacy. Christian dating should be intentional with a view toward marriage. Personally, I would strongly advise against getting on a five-year dating and engagement treadmill. Fall in love with the wrong person, and you might find yourself in a perpetual friendship on a road going nowhere. We've all seen it. Anything can happen in five years. And ladies, to be blunt, you don't have all the time in the world. There is a window, and engagement is not a guarantee, not in this culture. So don't become a faux spouse for someone who won't commit to you. Only become emotionally involved with someone who is looking to marry, who wants to marry, who is ready to marry, who can marry, who is mature enough to marry, and who is willing to marry you, who is willing to close off all other options. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes this, When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose 
for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, marriage vows are not just helpful, but even serve as a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, what they really mean is, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. So, I mean, Keller treads with a heavy step there, but there's words of wisdom. And with that little excursus, let's bring things back now to the gift of celibacy, verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, if sexual desire is a chronic distraction and temptation, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Christian single, always remember the wise words of Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry Callahan. A man's got to know his limitations. A woman too. Brother, sister, don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to fulfill a a role God did not call you to or make you to be or gift you with. Don't make the mistake of reading what Paul says in this chapter, that, that for those believers given the gift that he, Paul, has received, that those Christians can live a more ordered, less anxious, less troubled and happier life, devoting themselves wholly to the kingdom, and then make that a kind of moral benchmark or a standard that you ought to conform to when the reality is you burn with sexual passion and desire and ought to be pursuing marriage. That's the sort of mistake, that's the sort of spiritual pride that has all kinds of repercussions the church can do without, frankly. Sexual desire is a good thing. That's a truth the church must affirm. Sexual desire is not unnatural. It's not sinful, even for Baptists. It can be acted on in ways that are sinful, but it's not sinful in itself. And when a Christian single inevitably feels sexual desire, that sexual desire is a nudge toward marriage. The married life is the divine provision for our natural sexual needs. Marriage is the context in which sexual desire is given. It's God-glorifying expression. But a man's got to know his limitations. So don't try to be something you're not. We'll be looking at this more uh, next week. But being a Christian means bringing what one is into the service of God. But if you're able, if you don't burn with sexual passion and desire, that's, that's a sub- sub- uh, subjective judgment that only you can make, remember, but if a sexual desire is not a chronic distraction, if it's not a chronic temptation, then Christian, you need to give serious, prayerful thought to staying unmarried. Now let's imagine for a moment that I'm not your pastor. Let's pretend the Apostle Paul is your pastor. And you're a virgin. You're a man or a woman who is sexually inexperienced, and you come to Pastor Paul with your questions. You're looking for some good pastoral counsel concerning your marital status. But before you can really get into your questions and concerns, Paul tells you this. Look, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I can give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, in calling me as his apostle and commissioning me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, is trustworthy And I also have the help of the Spirit in making my judgment. So would you care to hear my advice, my opinion, my judgment on these matters? And you say, yes, I certainly would. And then Paul might say, well, you need to know, I'm not addressing an issue with one right 
answer. This isn't a matter between right and wrong. I understand, you say. And then Paul, he looks you in the eye, and with pastoral love and apostolic wisdom, he tells you, I wish that you were single as I am. But each Christian has their own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Not everyone has the gift of celibacy like I do. And if a Christian cannot control themselves, then they should marry, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But if you have that gift, then it's good for you to stay unmarried. And then Paul will go on to explain why that's the case, using the two reasons you see listed in your bulletin. But before we come to that, we need to know this. Jesus speaks on this matter of celibacy as well. Turn to uh, Matthew 19, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And that last remark provokes a very cynical response from Jesus' disciples. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And, and as they say that, you know, what they're saying is, sheesh, you know, if, I have to, if I have to commit to the trials of marriage with such finality and permanence, uh, that it's just better not to get married. It's better simply to remain unmarried. And, and they're not meaning at all to suggest that lifelong singleness was actually a serious option because in Jesus' day, it was, it was unheard of that a man would choose to remain single his entire life. A good Israelite saw it as his duty to get married and to have a family, to be fruitful and to multiply. So the disciples, they must have been stunned when Jesus didn't just dismiss their remark, but actually affirmed their verdict. Verse 11, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, that is, the disciples' word of, it is better not to marry but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, not everyone can live by such a verdict, such abstinence from marriage, but some do. Those to whom it has been given, those who are gifted to do so. And who are these people? Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and that refers to people who are born with physical issues, um, medical conditions involving the reproductive system or genitalia. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and that's just as nasty as it sounds, because in the ancient world, royal officials were sometimes castrated in order to ensure that they would pose no threat sexually to the king's harem. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, there are those who have voluntarily chosen a lifestyle of celibate singleness because of the claims and interests of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says this, The one who can accept this should accept it. Not because celibacy is an intrinsically holier state, rather it's a special gift to some people whose singleness has potential to make them of more useful service to the kingdom of God. This, this all comes down to a Christian's ultimate priorities, doesn't it? And Jesus teaches that the values of his kingdom ought to take precedence. The one who can 
accept this, should accept it. Wow, that is a that is a powerful verse. That is a verse to be reckoned with. And if you're a Christian single and you believe you may have this gift, those are words from your Savior you don't want to put on the back burner to think about later, if you get around to it. This is a teaching you need to prayerfully consider today. I'm not telling you. Jesus is saying, if you can do this, you should. And just a quick word to Christian parents. If your adult Christian child should ever speak to you about their desire to serve the interests of the kingdom of God through their being a celibate Christian the rest of their days, and if your son or daughter has prayerfully thought through this text and they understand the teaching, and you can see that their burning passion is for Jesus, then you need to give them 100% of your support. Mom, dad, put those wedding plans and grandchild plans away. And give glory to God that he has blessed your child with this gift to serve his interests exclusively. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians 7. In Paul's judgment, staying unmarried is preferable for two reasons. The first reason is this, verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now that one sermon... That one verse is a sermon unto itself, so let me just tell you what it means. According to D.A. Carson, the word rendered crisis in this verse simply means necessity or compulsion. What, What Paul is referring to is the present necessity, the present compulsion of living with the end in view. So hear that. In Paul's judgment, because of the present necessity of living with the end in view, staying unmarried... Is preferable. Skip down to verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Which doesn't mean husbands should sexually withdraw from their spouses. That would be to defraud their wife of their sexual due, as you read in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. No, what Paul's saying is marriage is not the sumum bonum. It's not the ultimate good. Marriage stands under God's as if not. Carson writes, because the new age has dawned, and because marriage itself does not continue into the resurrection existence of the new heaven and new earth, then as important and as wonderful as marriage is, the thoughtful Christian will not invest it with eternal significance. Paul puts the matter succinctly in verse 31. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Brothers and sisters, the old order of sin and rebellion has not passed away. It's still here, but it's doomed. It's living on borrowed time. This world in its present form is passing away, but the consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming. And that changes how Christians look at everything. Paul clearly sees the implications. Verse 29, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. Tim Keller shows us in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, um, that this means on the one hand, all the social and material concerns of this world, they still exist. Christians still need to go to school and get job and pay taxes. 
Um, Christians don't drop out of life. We don't move to California and, and just wait for it all to end on a mountaintop somewhere. We still live in this world. Yet our assurance of God's future world, the consummated kingdom of Christ, transforms our attitudes towards this life and all of our earthly activities. Certainly, we should be glad of earthly success, but not overly glad. This world in its present form is passing away. And we can be saddened by failure, but not too downcast, because our true joy is in the future guaranteed by God. Uh, This world in its present form is passing away. We are to enjoy, but not be engrossed in the things of this world. And this, this obviously has a direct bearing on our attitude toward marriage and family and sex. Paul says both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. We should be neither overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so. This world in its present form is passing away. We're not to allow this passing world to dictate the priorities of our existence. Verse 27, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. We're going to look at this more next week, but Paul is telling the Corinthians, bloom where you're planted. If you're a Christian, there's no need to change your marital status. It's irrelevant. Instead, we're all to live life in such a way that shows we understand the eschatological reality we inhabit, the priorities of the kingdom of God, the shortness of time. This world in its present form is passing away. Verse 28, but if you do marry... You have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And now we come to the second reason why Paul feels it's better for a Christian to remain unmarried. But those who marry will face many troubles, or better still, pressures in this life. And I want to spare you this. Beloved, there are pressures in marriage. The pressure of the divided interests of married life and devotion to one spouse on on the one hand and living in undistracted devotion to the Lord Jesus on the other. And Paul wants the Corinthian virgins to be free of that pressure of divided interest because things change once we're married. Our our God-given sphere of responsibility is enlarged. What God expects of us changes and if and when Christians have children that sphere is enlarged even more verse 32 I would like you to be free from concern an unmarried man is concerned with the Lord's affairs how he can please the Lord but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world how he can please his wife and his interests are divided and Paul would say and Jesus would say too Christian men, if you can, if you have a choice in the matter, if you're not going to burn with sexual desire in your unmarried state, you should be anxious to first please the Lord. Remain unmarried. Why? Because an unmarried man is unencumbered by the legitimate, good, and proper concern to look after his wife. The unmarried man is free to concentrate his undivided attention on other things, how he can please the Lord instead of how he may please his wife. 
As one commentator writes, a married man who neglects or alienates his spouse by dedicating himself solely to the service of God has misunderstood what devotion to the Lord requires of him, and he fails to honor God. George Whitfield did that. Whitfield is one of my dearest heroes of the faith. He's a big part of the reason why I became a pastor. He was a man greatly used of God in the 18th century uh, evangelical awakening. But in my opinion, his marriage was a big black mark on his Christian record. His ministry took precedence over his marriage. I believe it is God's will that I should marry, Whitfield wrote to a friend in 1740. But he was concerned. I pray God that I may not have a wife till I can live as though I had none. But Whitfield misunderstood this text. Uh, He took it literally. And that brought Whitfield a largely unhappy marriage. He and his wife were almost never together. Whitfield vowed that he would not preach one sermon less in a married state than in a single state. And so his wife stayed in London London, while he preached the gospel all over uh, Great Britain and up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. No, no, no. Paul recognizes the very real and legitimate concerns married people must have for their spouse. And so that plays a significant part in his preference for singleness. And the same applies to women, too. Verse 34, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. So with the whole person. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Very quickly, in verse 36, Paul turns his attention to those who are engaged. Verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might be acting, might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, which probably means the girls come of age, and the man has been holding off on the marriage longer than was considered culturally appropriate. Because in this culture, there were legal and familial implications with betrothal, right? It's an arranged marriage. They were arranged to be married since they were kids, basically. So it appears this man is concerned, as he should be, not to do anything unseemly or disgraceful. He is concerned about his own moral integrity and the reputation of the gospel. He wants to be above reproach. Verse 36, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry because he knows it's better to marry than to burn with passion, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. Now, do you remember the Corinthian slogan in verse 1? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There's all sorts of terrible theology behind that slogan. There's a, there's a Neoplatonic dualism of flesh versus spirit. There's an overrealized eschatology. The gospel has not sufficiently changed the Corinthian worldview. And so there were all sorts of Christian there's all sorts of Christian peer pressure flowing from that crazy slogan, and it was being applied to married couples. Which is why Paul commands At the beginning of chapter 7, do not defraud your spouse of their sexual due. You owe them. Your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse. So keep that that ascetic peer pressure in mind as we read verse 37. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind 
who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, right? So not because of peer pressure in the church. This man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her, in light of everything Paul said in this chapter regarding circumstances and inclinations, motives, obligations, personal freedom and convictions, but he who does not marry her does better. So, uh, there's a lot of teaching there in New City. Lots of text to digest and apply. What's the, what's the take-home component? How then are we to live in the light of everything that we've read this morning? I want to close by making a final impassioned appeal to any Christian singles here today who think they may possess the gift of celibacy. Uh, I realize that may be a very narrow strata of people represented here today, but if there's even one, please hear me. The, the, there are three steps that you need to take. Step number one, prayerfully determine whether God has indeed granted you the gift of Christian celibacy. Again, what that looks like basically is sexual desire is not a chronic distraction and temptation in your life. You're not someone who burns with sexual passion. And that burning is located somewhere on a spectrum that the Bible nowhere explicitly quantifies. That's for you to judge. Every person is different, but it wouldn't necessarily be the case that you have absolutely zero sexual desire, zero desire for marriage, zero desire for marital companionship. It, it could be that, all right, but that's, that's the Moby Dick of celibacy. Sightings are rare. You can just tell. You know it would be possible for you to live without marriage, without sex, and not burn with unfulfilled desire. Or it could be that you're attracted to the same sex. And that attraction is to such a degree that there, there really isn't any meaningful opposite sex attraction. And you just know you're never going to experience the sexual intimacy of an opposite sex pairing in marriage which as we come under the authority of God's word is the believer's only option. Brother, sister, this text is for you. It still applies. You may not have the gift of celibacy, but for the glory of God in this passing world, step number two, commit to the celibate lifestyle and commit to the kingdom. Christian, if you have this God-given gift, then get serious about using it. You're in a different place than the believer who desires to be married, but who burns with passion. And in God's providence has not uh, been provided yet with a spouse. And, and if that second kind of single is you, Christian, then you need to be pursuing marriage, all the while trusting God for grace and submitting to his sovereign will. And of course, the possibility of marriage is always there for you. You could meet somebody today. And your day-to-day life, your future plans, it's, it's lived out with that very real possibility of change. But for the Christian who has committed to live a lifetime of celibate singleness, you can burn some bridges. You can make some dramatic changes because you no longer have to think about the future responsibilities to a spouse or children. This would all be part of your good stewardship of this gift. Start 
living the life of a Christian who has no plans to get married or have children. Now, what that looks like in your context, I can't tell you, but it's something you need to be prayerfully thinking through. You you should talk to your pastors about that, perhaps. If you can do this, Jesus says you should. But what this does not mean is that you must become a missionary to an unreached people group. That could be the case, and if it is, great. But perhaps for a variety of reasons, serving on the mission field is not for you. Perhaps your giftings lie elsewhere. Your local church needs to make that call. What I'm saying is commit for life to being a celibate Christian, living for the priorities of the kingdom, in whatever role God has called you to, bloom where you are planted, all the while being a faithful member of your local church. This is step number three. Throw yourself into the life of the members of your local church. Minister to them in the unique way that you can as a single and let them minister to you. They are your family now and into eternity. Here are your brothers and sisters, your mother, your father, your children. Mark 10, 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Single Christian, allow the kingdom of God to topple your cherished priorities. The kingdom of God demands of its citizens new priorities. Embrace them. You have one life to live for Jesus. So don't listen to the scoffing of this world. This world in its present form is passing away. Instead, let Jesus entrance your gaze, be captivated by his love. Offer up your life to him. As James Edwards writes, the kingdom takes from those who would follow Jesus the things they would keep and gives to them things they cannot imagine. Christian, if you give up everything, not only your possessions, but people, a potential spouse, potential children, indeed your own life to follow Jesus, you will not simply be compensated for your sacrifices. Jesus says you will be surfeited a hundred times over with the same. And in the world to come, when people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, with eternal life. Amen.